0: Welcome to What CEOs Talk About. Do you wonder what CEOs talk about behind closed doors? How they bring
1: their vision to reality? How do they overcome and succeed through adversity? We share that and so much more with each episode. Now, let's get started with the show. Hello, everybody. My name is Martin Hunter. I am the host of What CEOs Talk About. And today we've got Liz along as our guest. Thank you for being on the show, Liz.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Martin. I'm really excited to be here.
1: I am at a WeWork station, so shout out to WeWork. I'm in WeWork, Florida, because I am seeing my partner down here. And so that's why you see me out of the normal studio that we have. Um, well, first, a word from our sponsors, Urgio. So Urjo is an operational excellence firm. So Liz, have you worked in businesses or know any businesses that have grown?
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: What is, What are the key struggles that you feel that kind of businesses, regardless of maturity, kind of struggle with off the top of your head?
0: Well, as far as growth is concerned, I think there's always a point where the... The the demand is exceeding the resources, and uh, a, a struggle to meet demand without the the funds to take that next step.
1: Absolutely, right. So that's a good point. So sometimes either the funds, the capability, or the capacity of the organization does necessarily follow. You've got a great sales team, and then operationally you're kind of struggling, and that's where bringing on Urgio with that operational excellence mindset really helps the organization see deliver and improve the value flow to customer and what we mean by that is we help out in a project base urgio helps out in regards to bringing these key resources that will inject like a swat team to be able to bolster up the operations to be able to deliver the uh, the sales that have happened. So great example. Thank you very much. So if you're looking at scaling your business, regardless of industry that you're at, you're ready to grow, you're ready to scale, or you're ready to exit, contact Urgio.com, and they will help you out. Fabulous. Thank you. With that being said, Liz Long, you are on the show. Liz, we're going to tell everybody a secret. It's Liz's first Ever podcast. So yay for Liz. Thank you very much for being on the show. Liz, what is the title of the show today?
0: The title of the show today is Victim Town, an unavoidable destination and the gifts it offers.
1: Da, 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 da. Um, that is also the title of your book, right? Now, Tell us a little bit, before you read the excerpt of your book, tell us a little bit about your story. Where do you come from? Where have you been? Where does it, you know, kind of come up to you writing the book and where you are in life today?
0: Sure. Martin, I'm about to turn 60 years old next month, and I'm at the beginning of my third career. Oh, wow. So it's never too late. (laughs) And I feel finally, finally, that I've landed where I've been meant, meant to be, and what all my life experiences have, have, have led me toward. And that is to be a mental health advocate by, by sharing my story and all of the, the things that helped me. Uh, And I'm doing that through publishing my book.
1: Okay. So tell me. How did it all start? Where are you from? What was your first career? Kind of bring us to where you are now.
0: Well, truthfully, it all started in childhood. But when I read the first excerpt from my book, that will probably prompt the the discussion from there. Career-wise, I have worked in accounting, and I've been entrepreneurial over the years with several businesses. And my second main career was real estate. Oh. where I ran a team of agents in the residential industry in southern ontario.
1: Okay. And then so what triggered what was the trigger event to say, well, I want to leave real estate and now I want to write a book?
0: That was the spiraling of my own mental health, which okay. had been building up for truthfully 50 plus years. And a few things a few things contributed Covid was a part of it.
1: No.
0: Um, a reneged proposal, a disappointing fallout with a business colleague, space emerged, and everything that had been tamped down and locked up for a long time started bubbling up. The tipping point for me was was a, a routine thing that people do every single day, and that was resetting my Netflix account. Oh shit. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was the final straw, Martin. I um I was relying heavily on Netflix and wine, and when I couldn't reset my Netflix account, the suicidal thoughts became uh, an hourly event, and I knew that was uh, that was trouble. And I checked myself in to a treatment center for depression, where I spent six weeks. It was the coming out of that and the integration of all I, I I learned there that spawned my writing of the book.
1: Wow, Netflix, evil, evil. <laughs> we're not. Hey, we're not. We're kind of kidding around. It's, um, it's funny. Well, I shouldn't say funny. It is. I, it's I, funny,
0: I, not funny, and and is. and that's that's my tone. I'm I'm cool with that.
1: So I was in Bosnia and we had to bury children. So I had to dig 14 graves that were four foot long and that stayed with me. And one of the things that people tell me all the time is when I was in the military, I always carried a toothbrush with me. No matter where I was in Borneo, Africa, South America, I always carried a toothbrush with me. So people call me a dentist all the time because I felt like, When you're in the bush and you're all groggy and all stuff, brushing your teeth is such a wonderful feeling of having clean teeth. And one time, about 10 years after that, uh, I was brushing my teeth. And the emotion came back. And that was my trigger event that I just started crying. I cried for two weeks straight. I cried for two weeks straight. I'd see my kids, I'd cry. It was the fact of brushing my teeth. So I want to relate to that trigger event that... Whatever it is, it's that one thing that brings that emotional attachment that brings that back. To yeah, I made fun of Netflix, but it's it's I, I know where it comes from. I definitely know where it comes from. Um, so let's uh, let's do your let's do your reading. Let's uh, let's hear what you got to say.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. When I was six years old, my favorite aunt and babysitter, Linda White disappeared at the age of 19. My mother moved into the role of crisis management and she completely checked out of parenting. We moved into my grandparents' house and I grew up in Linda's bedroom. We all endured five very long years of not knowing if she was even alive. It took a tremendous toll on our family. My grandfather had a stroke. My baby sister was born prematurely and died. And there were several divorces. And today, more than 50 years later, her case remains one of the longest unsolved murders in Canada. This excerpt is from Chapter 4, called You Did the Best You Could. Shit happened to all of us when we were kids. And even though we may have lost our way, whatever it was that happened, it really wasn't our fault. It wasn't fair, and we certainly didn't deserve it. No child does. But all the things that happened when we were kids, they caused us to change. It was impossible for them not to. In order to explain to ourselves why or how anything happened, we imagined stories and we made up meanings with whatever sketchy information happened to be available. The way we figured things out and the meanings that we made up They completely changed how we thought of ourselves and our perspective of the world. They caused us to act in new and different ways. Our revised behaviors, our coping mechanisms, along with our new beliefs about the world, had one purpose, to protect ourselves from further hurt. I have only seven childhood memories. This story is memory number three. Not long after my Aunt Linda went missing, a young girl disappeared from the woods right beside my school playground. It happened on the weekend, and she didn't go to my school, but she was the same age as me, and it happened in the same woods that my friends and I played in every day at recess. While my younger brother and I were sitting at the dinner table, my parents were talking with each other about this new development, and then they remembered something. They said that Marianne Shewitt still hadn't been found. Who was that? Listening to them, I learned that a year ago, a 10-year-old girl named Marianne got into a car after her school let out, and she was never seen again. Her school was only nine miles away. I remember sitting at the table thinking, What? It's not just my Aunt Linda and the girl in the woods. Another girl got taken last year, too? It may sound hard to believe, but this is all true. My father started walking a group of us neighborhood kids the three blocks to school every morning with a pitchfork. <laughs> it completely boggles my mind that we even owned such a thing. And I guess it must have been the only tool in our shed that could be used for protection. The risk of getting snatched, however, had just become even more real. All the kids were scared, but nobody was more afraid than me because I knew firsthand that it didn't happen to other people. I don't actually remember walking with the pitchfork. That part was told to me by the other kids and also by my dad. What I do remember is being terrified. I was terrified to be alone every single time I left my house. Going to school was a non-negotiable. In my classroom, I started looking around. One, two, three, four, five, There are 36 kids here. That's a lot. If I can just stay really, really small and quiet and not do anything to stand out, if the snatcher shows up here, hopefully he won't see me. It's not that I wanted anyone else to disappear. I really didn't. But that's how the voice in my head worked when I was six years old. My refusal to leave the safety of the classroom also meant that I would not even go to the washroom, not ever, not even at lunch. Too embarrassed to ask the teacher if a friend could go with me, I was ashamed. I didn't want to tell people why I was such a scaredy cat. And it was a very long day until school let out at 3.45 in the afternoon. One winter day, when the last bell finally rang, to go to the bathroom really, really badly. And I don't know why, but nobody was ever around to walk us home. Instead, each of our parents gave us instructions. Whatever you do, stay together. Make sure you come straight home. Don't dilly-dally and don't talk to anyone. Pay attention and keep your wits about you. I debated staying with the group that day like I was supposed to, but my bladder was about to burst. And they all walked so slowly. Anyway, we were just a group of kids. We didn't even have a spoon, let alone a pitchfork. The way I figured it, running by myself as fast as I could the whole way, well, that was my best option. I happened to be wearing a brand new outfit. Dark green polyester pants with a seam right down the center of each leg to the coolest bell-bottom flare ever my plaid top was a perfect match. I was styling. But the voice in my head was growing concerned about something else. Oh my gosh, I have to go so bad. This is not good. Then a different voice showed up. It'll be okay. Just run your fastest and don't look back. So I took off at lightning speed, holding onto the handle of my school bag for dear life. I raced down the sidewalk, I couldn't help but look over my shoulder every few steps, and after only two blocks, I could barely breathe. And as I rounded the last corner, I could see my house, yay! But it was still more than a block away. Afraid that I was not going to make it, I pretended I was on the track team with a coach on the sidelines yelling at me, run faster, long! And I did. Somehow I found even more energy, and I was able to pick up the pace but that extra effort expended for that gain in speed, well, let's just say it wasn't the best move. It began to compromise my ability to hold in the pee. It started with a few drips. I could feel each one slowly rolling down the inside of my legs, separately chasing that fateful drop that led the way, and I slowed down to a jog, hoping to get a grip, as they say, to stop the flow, But as any girl knows, once that dam breaks, it is damn hard to stop. The pee continued to roll, quickly becoming an unstoppable stream and gaining in velocity down both legs. Ooh, no, I hope it doesn't show. With my shitty luck, it was cold out. Freezing cold. January in Canada cold, Martin. I'm talking bobsled to the grocery store cold. And I wish desperately for the safety and privacy of my house. The faster I ran, the more I peed. Oh, my best school clothes are ruined. Didn't take long for the pee to soak right through the fabric of my green polyester pants. And what followed was like a freakish science experiment. As the warm pee met the frigid winter air, the result was disastrous. Gusts of urine smelling steam began to rise up all around me. "'Oh, yuck, what is happening?' I felt like Pigpen from Charlie Brown, and I started to cry. You'd think that was bad enough, but uh uh-uh. The science experiment was about to enter phase two. My fancy pants with the pleat down the middle, those pants, they began to get brittle, and then they froze, solid. I could barely move my legs. Hell was freezing over.' My run mutated into this weird, happy-go-lucky, straight-legs-swinging-out-the-sides kind of movement. I must look like an idiot, I thought. Why couldn't I live in Florida? As my skin, wet, covered in pee, rubbed and chafed against the frozen fabric, my legs felt like they were on fire, which made no sense at all. I glanced down, no flames, but my legs were burning and now I had frozen tears on my face. Oh, I can't think about it now. And I don't have to because I've arrived. I made it. Back in my warm house, I'm melting. My hands are melting. But I'm here and I didn't get snatched. And I'm grateful. And I still don't feel safe. That day in 1968 changed my life. It was the beginning of a long and complicated expedition, an expedition to reclaim my voice and eventually find my place in the world.
1: Thank you. Thank you for that. That just shows really how much self talk is such a key component to mental health, right? We say, Oh, mental health is a disease, or mental health is this, or mental health is that. But really, it's the self-talk that I find is always one of the critical components of disastrous events, in my opinion. What do you think about that?
0: I think self-talk, you're you're absolutely right, Martin. It's the it's it's the foundation of where we where we end up living. And the fictitious place i created called victim town has a number of different places and each of those places has a voice that talks to us and the places in victim town are the ego arena which is oh, the no hub man. hub of it all the guilt and shame cafe where the maitre d detox to us
1: oh yeah, the, oh, yeah.
0: The denial walking trails, the sorrow swamp lands, the anger gas station, the control factory, and epiphany hospital.
1: I like the gas station. You are you know, throw more fire and more gas on the fire absolutely. It's uh the I think that the one thing that I hear from your story that we the fear is more, we fear fear more than the actual event itself, is that we get ourselves in a position where we're afraid of something that leads us down this path to where it's null and void, it's non-existent, it's just, it just lives in our head.
0: It does, but those those voices can be very convincing. And collectively, I call them the town voices. And they speak with a mission to spin us up and entice fear.
1: Absolutely. There's there's this great tool that we do, and I'm not going to claim it. It's Tim Ferriss who, who made it. It's called fear setting, where you take all the fears that you've got and you actually plan them out and say, okay, What and basically do a risk matrix. What's the probability of happening and what's the impact that it has? And by having a process to deal with each of them, it's funny how you can silence these voices in your head by saying, Oh, well, it's not as big as I expect it to be. Oh, there's an action plan to mitigate that risk. Oh, there's actions that I oh, I can avoid that fear by completely doing that. So having a bit of a rational kind of big acts to kind of kill those voices is something that, uh, you know, as a CEO, as a leader, you can implement for your organization. Because I know that I'm sure C- CEOs live massive fears as, as much as we think that they're rock solid every day and day in, day out. So what do you, how do you, what's your suggestion in your book on how you attack those, those characters?
0: The first step in in any transformation or growth is awareness. And by the descriptions and the naming of the places in Victim Town, people will recognize that's where they're hanging out themselves. And they'll also recognize and, uh, and find people that they know well, friends, business colleagues, employees, are also hanging out in those places. And you referred to it, Martin, as a, a, an axe or, or something to, to, to quench those voices. And I introduce the voice that talks back to those. So you said some of those things the voice says. It's not nearly as bad as you thought. When we talk back to the voice in our head, we become aware that that fear inciting shitty voice is not really us because we're talking back to it. And the voice that we're talking back to it from, I call our heart voice. And our heart voice is full of wisdom and knowledge and only acts for our highest and best good. So when we can learn to cultivate the heart voice and then have the courage to act on its wisdom, we can put some of those town voices in their place
1: yeah that's a that's a great i think the um so what do you suggest when somebody is is as a ceo as as a leader what kind of you've gone through this so what are some signs and symptoms that you could tell a leader to say hey listen what here's the things that you can control here's the things that you can do to really gauge somebody's if if somebody is visiting victim town more often than they should that they're responsible or accountable for
0: yeah that's that's that it's a really important thing because CEOs today have to be more aware and cognizant of their 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 people's mental health in order for the business to thrive and for everybody to 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 be better and more successful. And one of the things that Victim Town and the Places does is that it destigmatizes and it makes it, it makes it, it makes it a conversation starter and easier for for people to 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 talk about it. For example, if they said to somebody on a Monday morning, hey, how was, how was your weekend? And what they're thinking in their head was, oh my God, I, I spent the entire freaking weekend in bed because I hate myself. But they're not going to say that. But they could say, you know, it wasn't that great. I ate three solid meals at the guilt and shame cafe. And the CEO could respond with, yeah, that uh, that's not a great place to eat. I, I've been there, and the food there sucks, man. And they'll know where they're, where they're at without them having to, to be as vulnerable.
1: There's, um, at my boys' school, I kind of like how one of the teachers, now this is something that I don't know if is implemented throughout the school system, but they, uh, she applies it, at um my boys' school or boys class is an emotional state. Are you are you red, are you yellow? Are you green? Are you blue? And so it it, it, without having to go too much into details, um you can apply that methodology at work too. Like one of the things that we do in uh in partnerships or in an organization called the entrepreneur's organization is we use a one-word opening, meaning that in the meeting, if, if I go uh, exhausted, and that's my one-word opening, I, everybody around the table knows in the meeting, well, Martin's really tired. So maybe not poke the bear, maybe not really go and ask Martin some really detailed mathematical questions, right? If they ask Liz and they go, Liz is excited, then we know that Liz is going to talk a little bit more than she would normally talk. And I'm just making examples, but giving tools to leaders to be able to assess, I think, without, and, and I think you nailed it in your story as well, is we're so, I hope I'm not disrupting. I don't care about anybody else. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Nobody comes in with bad intentions, but everybody puts up these walls to make sure that, and the best defense is, is to have a wall in front of them, right? So I think there's an opportunity there to, to do that, right?
0: We all have the same mission to protect ourselves from being hurt. And for each of us, however that manifests, whatever it is, I can pretty much guarantee it started in childhood. I had five or six therapists over the years, tried to convince me of that. And it's not that I was denying the things I went through as a child. I was fully aware of, of what happened. I just didn't think that those things had any, any impact or responsibility for my struggles as an adult until I became
1: living proof. I, I absolutely 100% support that. And I think there was, there's documentation, there's like five... Kind of, and again, it. I, I think that the. I don't want to lay blame on the previous generation because as parents, you do everything that you can for the betterment of your child. Well, most of us do. There's some pretty shitty parents, but I think that, like you said before in your story, there are survival moments where people just can't cope with it, and that's just the way it is. And I think most parents, honestly, do the best that they can to raise their children in the way that they've been raised, and some it's it's your perception as an individual in a child of how you're being treated that has a major impact on it and i know that for example my father was an alcoholic and was not present often and he wasn't malicious he wasn't this it wasn't that yes it was harder to grow up and we'd get hits across the head which you don't do anymore which is a good thing but you know I I don't think there's never a lot of, you know, physical abuse, but I, I see myself always wanting to make my father proud. And that today as at the age of 50, it drives me as an individual to say, well, I can do better. I can do better. I can do better. I can do better. To a fault sometimes, to a fault.
0: Yes. You're not wrong. Every, every parent, I, I, I'm in agreement. We all, and I'm a parent myself now. I have two grown boys and they will attest that I totally messed up and caused them some trauma and shit in their childhood. Um, we do the best we can with the resources we have. Um,
1: and, and that goes for CEOs and leaders as well, right? Our, it's, and employees and staff and people don't necessarily show up at work. There's some few morons, but people tend to show up at work with with good intentions of, at heart and looking to do the best that they can and same thing as a leader. But I think you have to be in today's age. Um, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional to be signs and symptoms um, for the listeners that are more consistent. You will know that one of my daughter's 13 uh, year old friend committed suicide on November 5th of, of 2021. And good parents, good circle. Um, the voices in her head, I'm assuming, pushed her to make a, a, a very courageous decision for her to do this. So I, I have gone in the out of my way to be intentional in assessing and making time for my staff um, and my team to say, hey, how are you doing? We've got prices of gas is high you've got we've got the start of ukrainian situation we've got the pandemic we've got vaxxers and anti-vaxxers there's so much disruption in the world right now where there's not a lot of time for silence i feel that everywhere you turn there's something else going on and i think that's not healthy as well so what are some what are some solutions to uh that you have lived through, that you think are good to, to silence or talk back to those those things. What are some personal tools that people can use for themselves?
0: Everybody's different, and depending on what your childhood experiences, your coping mechanisms, your struggles as an adult, uh, depending where you're hanging out in victim town and what the voices are saying in your head, can be unique. The things that worked for me were leaning into my feelings and crying when I needed to cry and getting the anger out and not suppressing whatever it is that's going on. I had a lot that I had to let out that was trapped in there for um, many years. So not to be keeping the things trapped in there, but letting them out as, as we live. Is, is a really good strategy. It's not what a lot of people want to hear because it's hard and it's shitty to, to feel the pain and the vulnerability and the rejection and all the other feelings that, that just really hurt. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of what I describe as radical self-care. Uh, and, and that, again, looks a little bit different for everybody. I believe meditation is a, an excellent tool. Exercise, I mean, the common things that that we all know, and yet we struggle to implement as often as we should. Clarity is a big thing. Uh, I've been sober now for 15 months since I checked myself into the place. Um, so I think that that that's a big a big help. Owning our stories is, is another one. We all have shameful things. So working through and transforming uh, and, and, and owning what we can't change, the things in our past, has helped me move forward.
1: That is so true. The power of storytelling, of, of, telling, of telling it in a story format, I find and owning that story is key. And I think there's nothing wrong in changing the narrative for your benefit. I think that there are certain things that you're allowed to change the story. Now, the events might not be the story not might not reflect the events of what they write in movies or are close to a real enactment or something like that based on the true story. Right. So when you're when you're telling your personal story, I think it's okay. it's okay to change certain things that bring grief that bring that bring you back to victim town i think that you should tell your story for the betterment of people understanding you and you being comfortable in your skin so i don't think that i i don't think you should lie but what i mean by that is that if it if it doesn't add value to the conversation without lying and it makes you feel better then do it there's nothing wrong with that
0: yeah for sure the the comfortable in your skin I think is just the beginning it's my hope that the readers of my book that the way will be paved for them to love themselves without Mm -hmm. limits or conditions
1: yeah I I mean self-love we talk about that with my kids often and then we make fun of it a little bit I was like so I feel it, loving yourself and caring for yourself are not necessarily selfish actions. Now, selfish means that you're you're centered on yourself, but the way that we view it, we see selfish as a negative thing. But if we change that negative connotation or change the language to self-care, there's nothing wrong with that. And this is something that I have that I've struggled with is, as a parent, as a supervisor, as a leader, as a leader, I tend to put others in front of me and to my detriment. And I think that, that if you're healthy physically, mentally, spiritually, then you're a better servant to others. So I think that that is a one-year role model for others who are potentially struggling. But also, you're a lot stronger. Personally, if, if you're, you know, go to the gym, you eat well, you stay well, you hydrate, you meditate, you keep learning. I think that makes you a role model. And without having to, to do much, you can influence others by being a better person.
0: Yes, absolutely. Self-care is, is, is an act of generosity because the more we fill ourselves up, the more we have to give to the people that we care about, the people that we lead uh, in our companies, and to our families. If, if we don't have it to give, then it, it, it only depletes ourselves, and then, then we're no good to anybody else.
1: Agreed. What's, uh, at, the, at the exception of your book, what other books have you read or that you keep by your side that you go, You know what? This is a piece of reference that I've kept with me for a long time.
0: Mm, There's lots, Martin. Um, In my healing journey, I would have to say one of the most influential people was Melanie Beattie and her work on codependent relationships. Because, and the core message of my book is that our childhood coping mechanisms are not meant to be permanent. I grew up trying to Keep the peace and not rock the boat, and do whatever it took to not be needy or displeasing or cause any more stress to a situation that was already uh, crisis mode for my family. In other words, I had zero boundaries, and as an adult, that that translates into uh, a, a great potential for codependent relationships. And Melody Beattie has done some tremendous work on healing those and the development of boundaries, the um, expression of them, the defending of them. I think boundaries is a is a huge thing for self-worth and happiness.
1: Good, good. So what. uh... What's the next step for you? What are you working on? So now you're, you're in this place in life. You've done some good job. You've got, you've got your book out. You're spreading the gospel. What's the one area of improvement that you're working on?
0: Well, Martin, there's always room for improvement. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm writing a self-help book, and I, I don't have a medical degree. I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. I'm still self-helping myself every time shit happens. It's, uh, it's a new adventure uh, in, in self-help. Uh, my book is actually not out yet. It's going into the publisher for developmental editing at the end of the month, so it won't be published until the beginning of twenty three. In the, yeah. In the meantime, uh, in the developmental stage, are workshops around Victim Town and the specific places that will that will help people. And before we get into that, I just wanted to share that Victim Town isn't isn't all bad. There are there are times when we need to go there. We we go there to process really hard feelings and to spend a little bit of time there can be a positive transformative experience for us it's where we all go to learn to learn the hard life lessons the the problems arise when we get stuck there and we don't know how to get out so that's where it's an unavoidable destination and it does offer gifts it can also be our demise
1: Mm, gotcha gotcha well said well said so what uh so for me, one area that I've been struggling with is my is eating. I tend to eat my emotions. So every time, no matter how much I try, um, I and I I said try. I tend to hate that word. Uh, it sets you up for failure. So one thing that I've been struggling with and that I'm focusing on in the next and today in the next future is my eating uh because eating for me is such an emotional situation. It's not about enjoying or not enjoying. It's about saying, well, I've earned the right, or because it's a bad day, or because it's this, and it's not alcohol-related, but food-related in some way, shape, or form. So um now that you're earning your spot as, as a reference in mental health, what do you... Where are you at what do you what's the gospel if if there's one piece of advice, what would you provide that? What would you say
0: I'm a big advocate of of therapy. I think that everybody can benefit from it. It's just a matter of what for and for how long you need to go and as a coping mechanism of eating your emotions because that, that is a coping mechanism. I would invite you to reflect on your childhood and think about when it started and 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 what happened and maybe work with a therapist or other ways. We can't we can't change our coping mechanisms until we till we figure out where they started. yeah, not an easy process, but uh, you gotta go back. You got to go back and figure out. And sometimes it's a benign incident. So you no. said something earlier. It, it's not so much what happened to us because we can put trauma on a, on a spectrum of trivial to tragic. And that's, that's a judgment call. And that's not the most influential factor it, it, as to how we end up. What really is important is how we internalized it as a kid. And and for some of us, it could be something fairly insignificant, but it had a huge impact on us. And then there's other kids that had terrible tragedies, but they, for whatever reason were more resilient and didn't end up with problems. So there's no judgment around what it was. it's it's identifying what it was and working healing that. and and then I think you'll find.
1: Well, I think accepting the fact that we're not perfect, right? So accepting the fact that we're not perfect, accepting the fact, right, I was till the age of 45, I felt like I was indestructible, right? I've been in the military, played rugby for many years. Nothing can stop Martin. Martin's a tank. Martin's nickname is Thanos at work, right? There's nothing that's going to stop me. And then you go, oh, my body's not following up. And then my body's not following up. Well, how did I cope with all these things? And then so being in the position where you kind of realize, and I think that mentally it's kind of the same way. And again, I'm not saying that the the body is letting go and the brain is letting go, but I think recognizing, and like you said, I think if you find the root cause in that or do a root cause analysis, again, using some business term. To apply on your own personality, just like if you are a robot, let's do a reboot and go down as far down and figure out where the problem is. Um, And then wanting to change the problem, I think that that's the one thing is to say, well, are you ready and willing? Do you personally want to change your problems? Right. I think that that's that victim town is gets back to that ego as well. so
0: absolutely and nobody's ready to take those steps until they're ready and that's what it's like in the control factory as parents we i'll speak for myself have a tendency to go there sometimes in the control factory we can be there in the capacity of employee or as boss and when we start thinking that we know what's best for someone else, I you should do this. this is what you need to do. this will fix your problem that's that that that's a job at the control factory, and that never ends well.
1: that is so applicable at work. I mean that kind that kind of almost that, that you see that I was I was telling Liz how the conversation kind of comes full circle, but that control is is really about as a leader. How much control do you really have? And it's not about the, it's about helping people and guide people, right? So when we provide Mm -hmm. feedback, we provide success feedback or guidance feedback. And I think as a leader, if you can guide people to either not go to victim town or to guide them through victim town so that they come out at the other end, I think that is the job of, any leader as a parent as a ceo as the as a a, a frontline supervisor it's really about how can you bring imp- empathy kindness direction mentorship to guide people out of you know to go around victim town to go through victim town or to kind of not go there at all <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yes. I think the the highest calling of a good CEO is to empower all of their people to be the best versions of themselves. And that can't happen by controlling.
1: I agree. And I think w- what you said, there is no way in your life you can't go to victim town. There's no way. There's just no way. And so do you have the right tools, right? So if I think of the four cardinal skills of leadership, which is direction, facilitation, elevation, and celebration, those are applicable to the guiding of Victim Town. You can't go there for them. You can offer the direction of saying, hey, this is how you do it. People go through. Here's how you get through it. Facilitate their journey through it train them and elevate them so give them the right tools to be able to deal in that journey through it and then celebrate them coming out of it i think there there's a huge connection between that and i love that victim town i think i i mean i i just it 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 puts it puts mental stability or accepting the mental aspect of us as human beings and not Saying shuffling it under the rug, I think, is, is, is critical.
0: Thank you. Yes, I, I hope that it will spark some new conversations and destigmatize some of the, the feelings and, and terms around mental health. And I also talk about the fact, and, and you touched on it, Martin, that you can't rescue people from victim town. Mm. You, 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 can't, you can't show up there and drag them out. They're they're only going to leave when they're ready to leave. And when you decide to leave Victim Town, when you've learned the life lesson you were sent there to learn, you're going to have to leave some close people behind if you've been hanging out with people that are there. You know, the Resentment parking lot is another place in Victim Town where people gather and they, they have grudge-telling competitions and they recount all the betrayals and terrible things that have happened to them in their lives and they, they try to one-up each other. Um, you know, th- those, those people are, are, thr- are, are, are there. They're not happy. Nobody thrives in victim town. But when you leave, you're going to have to leave those people behind. And with any healing, transformative human journey, there will be people that fall off and fall out of your life.
1: That is so true. That is so true. We had the conversation with my daughter about that with a friend at school. It just different directions. Anyways, um, Liz, thank you so very much for being on the show. I think uh, it was lovely. We had a little bit of technical issues down the middle, but we sorted it out. So thank you very much for your patience. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much, Martin, for making this a, a very enjoyable and easy process. And if your listeners would like to connect, lizlongwrites.com is my website, and I will have workshops in the developmental process. So if there's anything that people are looking for, I'm open to uh, suggestions.
1: Absolutely. All of that will be at the bottom of the the page. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you, Liz. Thank you. With that said, my name is Martin Hunter, the uh, host of What CEOs Talk About, where we translate strategy into frontline operations. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to What CEOs Talk About. Make sure to click subscribe to get notified about future episodes or check us out at www.watceostalkabout.com.